He was raised in a Baptist family, born in Massachusetts, but his family then moved to New York. And he was raised there as a Baptist, not by baptism, but by osmosis, because his family was Baptist. He then moved to Vermont, and he became a farmer, and he rejected his Baptist roots and became a deist. And then he went to war like his dad had been in the Revolutionary War. He fought in the War of 1812, and he had a near-death experience. Shells were bursting all around him, metal fragments. A man was killed right next to him, and others were injured, but he came out unscathed. And this led him to begin to think that maybe God does involve himself with his people and his creation. And it moved him gradually to conversion to be a Christ follower and also eventually to become a Baptist lay preacher after 1816. In 1818, William Miller, you might have guessed who I'm talking about, was studying the book of Daniel, and he became convinced that Christ was going to return not only soon, but he had a pretty good idea of when it was going to be. For in Daniel, the eighth chapter, it says that there will be 2,300 days that will elapse before the holy place is restored. And then later in Daniel 9, it says that there will be a decree, and it will follow that decree, royal decree, to restore the holy place, which is understood to be Jerusalem. And Miller saw this having occurred historically, of course, with what he believed to be the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. and the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. And then what he did, he took the 2,300 days and he converted them to years and he did his math. And the math came out to 1843. 2,300 years after the restoration, the decree of Artaxerxes. And he began to publish his views. He wrote evidence from Scripture in 1836, and then a Boston preacher by the name of uh, Joshua Himes began to promote his views in a New York paper called The Midnight Cry and a Boston paper called The Signs of the Times. And the movement began to gain some traction. And in the financial panic and collapse of 1837, people then gravitated magnetically to this Adventist movement. Some estimate that there may have been as many as 500,000 followers nationwide. The Millerite movement drew mainly from, as you might expect, Baptist churches, especially free will Baptist, and Christian church members, the disciples of Christ. And then in January 1843, he decided that God had called him to be specific about his prophecy. And he declared that the Lord was going to return sometime between March the 21st, 1843, just a little later in that year, and before March the 21st, 1844. When this failed, when, when March the 22nd, 1844 came around, he readjusted his prediction and said, no, 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 it's going to be in October, the 22nd of October, 1844. I give him credit for this. He wasn't vague. He didn't defer and say it was going to be 50 years from then. He committed himself to a specific date later in that year, but it failed. It's what the Adventists call the great disappointment. He was expelled from his church in Lowhampton, New York, New York, and he died five years later in 1849, still in hope that the Lord was about to come imminently. The Adventist movement then began to make theological adjustments to accommodate for the great disappointment. 
And a new leader emerged not long after this. You know who she was, Ellen Gould White. She had many visions, recorded about 2,000 of them, wrote about 40 books and about 5,000 articles to promote the Adventist movement, which we now know today as a Seventh-day Adventist, because she said the reason that that prediction had not come true was because God's people were unfaithful. They were not worshiping on the Sabbath. Well-intentioned, William Miller, I believe he was. You know, many religious leaders have made bad predictions. Some of them, I think like Miller, had genuinely good motives. They were simply wrong. But you know, there are others. And we talked about one of them last week or a couple of weeks ago. An extension of the Seventh-day Adventist movement that was an aberration the Branch Davidians, and David Koresh. Those like Koresh are false prophets. I think the intentions are not, their intentions were not honorable. You see, others have been nothing less than liars and deceiving prophets, in fact, false Christs. So we come to the text today in Matthew, the 24th chapter. It's during the Passion Week. It's after the triumphal entry on Sunday. It's after the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple on Monday. And it occurs on Tuesday, the longest day of recorded ministry of Jesus' life. It begins in Matthew, the 21st chapter, verse 20, and it runs all the way through Matthew 25. Before this passage that we read today in Matthew, he is experienced, he is engaged in confrontations in the temple with the officials who have questioned his authority. He has spoken three parables in Matthew's gospel. They're not all in the other gospels. The two sons, the wicked tenants, which is in the other gospels, and the marriage feast. And he has challenged and been challenged by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and a lawyer who has asked him what is the greatest of all commandments. He has condemned very pointedly in chapter 25, a little bit later, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He also talks about the scribes then robbing widows' houses. The event with the widow's might has occurred. He has come out of the temple. And the disciples marvel at the great buildings. And you know what he says. He says, do you not see these things? He's talking about the great buildings. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that there will not be one stone left upon the other. Every one of them will come tumbling down. And then we come to this passage after the disciples, inner circle of disciples, ask him a couple of questions. They want to know, when will these things happen? And in addition to that, what are the signs then of your second coming? So would you stand with me as we read these few verses? Matthew, the 24th chapter, verses 4 through 8 they have just asked those two questions. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. 
But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. May God bless the reading of his word and may he help us to understand it more clearly. Let's have a seat. You see, this passage is actually the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. And after he delivers this Olivet Discourse, then we find that he will give three end-time parables in the Gospel of Matthew about the ten virgins and the talents and the sheep and the goats. The Olivet Discourse we can find elsewhere, not just in Matthew, the 24th chapter, but also Mark, the 13th chapter, and Luke, the 21st chapter. And what follows here, Jesus basically answers the two questions asked by his inner circle of disciples. When will these things happen? And he has just predicted the collapse, fall, destruction of the temple. And then the other question, what will be the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age? Now, let me make a disclaimer here. Um, There are many other interpretations beside what I am going to give this morning many other applications of this discourse. Many people say that this whole passage from verse 4 to 44 predict the end times, the events that will lead to the very end times. What they do is they rely on certain theological presuppositions, usually based on an end times system of theology that they see the passage through that lens. Most of the time, what they have done is they have woven together passages from Daniel, 1 Thessalonians, the rapture, and passages from Revelation dealing with the millennium. And they say this passage all focuses on Christ's return and the millennial kingdom. I disagree. My disclaimer is this. This morning, my explanation, I focus as a preterist, as basically a historian, that it is focused on the immediate events, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he does address the end times. He's simply answering the two questions asked by the disciples. When will these things happen? The destruction of the temple and the attendant persecution that comes after that. And what are the signs then of your coming and the end of the age? He does then address that a little bit later. And he talks about the suddenness of that day. I think that in order for me to understand it, I believe that Jesus was giving us a layered discourse. I think there are layers of reading that we have to take a look at. And I will say this, many disagree with my interpretation. Maybe some of you will too, but you know that's okay. We can differ, I think, on our eschatological, our end-time theology. But I want you to be clear that I disagree with those other interpretations. When we take a look at this layered interpretation of Matthew 24, it begins with preliminary warnings. They're basically three sets of warnings. He warns about misleaders, those that mislead, misguide people. And in fact, they try to deceive God's people. And there are a couple of warnings in this passage. The first of those warnings about the misleaders is found in what we read, verses 4 through 5. He talks about false Christs who will mislead, about rumors and natural signs. Now, these, these wars and famines, the earthquakes, they could apply to any time in history. They could apply to the final times. But here, I think Jesus is talking about near-time events that he describes in verses 9 through 22. 
In verses 9 through 14, these are signs of things that are going to happen that will result in the persecution and expansion of the church. And then in verses 15 through 22, he's talking about the temple destruction and the scattering of God's people. So you see, when we look at it that way, we do know that there were false Christs that arose between about 30, when this is being spoken roughly, to the destruction of the temple, which is 70 for that 40-year period. Josephus reports this. He says, The land was overrun with magicians, seducers, and impostors who drew the people away from in multitudes to the solitude of the deserts. They went to see signs. They went to see miracles. And these prophets promised to show and demonstrate them by the power of God. And amongst these, we see in Scripture, Simon the magician, in Samaria. We know that he was called a great power of God. And later we are told by Eusebius that in fact his followers erected a statue to him on the, on the Tiber River in Rome as a god, false prophet. There was Decithius about 36 AD, a Samaritan false prophet who claimed to be Moses incarnate. And he took the Samaritans up to Mount Gerizim and he promised to uncover, to dig up and uncover the vessels of Moses, the holy vessels. What happened to him? Pilate captured him and he executed him and the leaders. There was Thutis, about 44 to 46 BC. And it's not the same Thutis that Gamaliel speaks about in Acts 5, who came much earlier. This Thutis claimed to be a prophet and he led an armed insurrection against Rome. He promised to take the people out to the Jordan River, and he would command the river, and it would part, and they could cross over it. The procurator, Fadus, then, captured and beheaded him and killed many of the leaders. And then you know, from Acts, the 21st chapter, there was the Egyptian false prophet, probably in the late 50s, who went to the Mount of Olives with 4,000 armed insurrectionists. And he promised then to command the walls of Jerusalem to collapse so that they could invade it and take it over the procurator, Felix, killed him, 400 followers, and took 20 captives. Didn't kill him. He escaped, but he killed 400 of his followers and 200 captives. You see, all of these were immediate false prophets. I think this is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. And then he gives another warning about false prophets in verses 23 through 28. Not just false Christ, but false prophets who will perform signs and wonders. And he warns us there, disregard their rumors. Disregard those rumors. You see, what he's talking about here are false Christ and pro false prophets. Just before he gives the signs of his second coming, there are going to be throughout history false prophets and false Christs who are going to prophesy the second coming of Christ the problem is there are no predictive signs by which we can determine when it will be. Because Jesus then in verse number 27, at the very end of this section about the warning, he says, it is going to be like a flash of lightning. It's going to be so fast. Wow. So these are the warnings about the prophets. Then he gives warnings of ominous signs in verses 6 through 8. And they will precede what? The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. There will be wars, there will be earthquakes, and there will be famines. And we know that this happened. Wars. There was the Roman Parthian War from 58 to 63. 
during which Palestine was severely threatened by the Persians. There was a civil war in Rome that occurred in 68-69, just before the war with the Jew, during, right before the war with the Jews. And during that time, there were, was assassination after assassination. Nero, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius were all assassinated before Vespasian became the, the emperor. So there were wars and rumors of wars. There were earthquakes. In the Bible, we see it. At the crucifixion, was there an earthquake? Yes. And what did it do? It tore the veil of the temple in two. At the tomb, when the angel came down and rolled the stone away, it says there was a great earthquake in Matthew 28. We see in Acts, the fourth chapter, when the apostles pray for boldness, and as they pray, what happens? There is an earthquake that shakes the whole building as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. In Philippi, how was it that Paul and Silas then were freed from their change? There was an earthquake that struck Philippi. We see biblical evidence of this, but we also see secular accounts. Between 40, 30, or 40, and 70, at least 12 major cities were destroyed during that 40 years by earthquakes. In 46, Crete was hit. In 51, Tacitus tells us that there were repeated earthquakes in that part of the world, including Rome. In 60 AD, background for what we're studying on Sunday evening, Colossae and Herapolis and Laodicea were hit, and Laodicea was virtually destroyed. In 63 AD, the great earthquake at Pompeii and Seneca tells us that there were bad earthquakes during that season in Syria, Greece, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Cyprus. And we know there was a great earthquake that occurred just before the fall of Jerusalem throughout Judea. So yes, there were wars and rumors of wars. There were earthquakes. And immediately there were famines. In Rome in 41, there was a great famine in 57 A.D. Throughout the Roman world, Agabus then prophesies that this is going to happen in the 11th chapter. There's going to be a great famine that hits all of the Syrian world. In Greece, and it, and it did happen. That is, of course, one of the reasons that Paul makes the collection, so that he can help the saints then in Jerusalem. In Greece in 49 A.D., there was grain shortage throughout the Roman world in 51 A.D., reported by Tacitus. And in Jerusalem, during the siege, of course, there was a great famine. The point is this. All of those predictions in those verses really focus primarily on the immediate future. Of course, there have been wars. Of course, there have been famines. Of course, there have been earthquakes since then. But they're merely the beginning. And I think what he means here is, yes, they will precede the destruction of the temple, but it can be taken another way. You see, this is a beginning point. When you look at these wars, when you look at these earthquakes, when you look at these famines, that's just the beginning. It's a point of comparison. In other words, what he's saying is, you haven't seen anything. You don't know just how bad it will be when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is dismantled and the people are scattered. Then he talks about difficult times in verses 9 through 14. Christ's followers then in that time will face big problems. There will be persecution, hatred, martyrdom. There'll be betrayal, brother against brother, family against family, Mark tells us. There will be false prophets who will arise, mislead many. And there will be lawlessness leading to a lack of devotion. Hearts will grow cold. And we see that's exactly what happened in Ephesus in Revelation. And he exhorts then in verses 9 through 14, remain faithful. You see, because the gospel is going to thrive. And you know what? The gospel is going to be preached to all nations. It will go to all the world. 
And then the end will come. And that is applied by postmillennialists a bit differently. There are two applications, I think, for these verses here. For the first century generation, all of these things would occur in their time. Even the preaching of the gospel to all nations, because we see this happened at Pentecost. We see that it happened through Peter to Cornelius. We see that Paul became the apostle to the nations, to the ethnoi, to the, to the Gentiles. And so it was accomplished fully in their generation. There's also a timeless application for us today. Each generation faces these signs. Each generation sees these problems, and it gives us an urgency to remain faithful and to continue as we collect an offering, for example, for foreign missions in December, to take the gospel to all the nations to the end of the earth. And then what Jesus does, beginning in verse 15, he begins to answer the two questions after these warnings. The first question is answered in verses 15 through 22 with a bit of an epilogue in verses 32 through 36. Let me explain. When will these things happen? The disciples have asked. That's about the destruction of the temple. And the answer is very clearly given. The sign of that is going to be the great tribulation. And it will be, the sign of it will be the abomination of desolation. This is prophesied in Daniel the 9th, Daniel the 11th, Daniel the 12th chapter. And it predicts a stoppage of the sacrifice and the desecration of the temple. These clearly were fulfilled. Already it has been fulfilled once when Antiochus Epiphanes... The Seleucid ruler came into Jerusalem, desecrated the altar with the image of Zeus, and made the sacrifice of, as you probably know, a swine, a pig. But there is a second fulfillment of it, we believe, in history. And that is when Titus and his Roman army came in in 70 A.D., and he desecrated the temple and the altar. He raped a prostitute on top of a copy of the Torah on the altar of God. And then his troops destroyed the temple by fire. You see, the abomination of desolation then did occur. And the people of God would be scattered in verses 16 through 22. With the destruction of Jerusalem, one over a million Jews were scattered or killed. 97,000 were enslaved. And the remaining 40,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem were scattered throughout the diaspora. These events were already fulfilled. Now, there's an epilogue. There's a further warning that comes a little bit later, and that's why I say it's layered. He gives the parable of the fig tree, and this illustrates that warning about the immediacy of what is about to happen. And he says to watch closely. Watch the signs of the seasons. Watch the fig tree. You see, these events are right at the door, he says. These things is the key phrase. These things the disciples have asked about, these things refer to to the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And there he say these things will happen before this generation passes away. There is a second answer that he gives, and it's to the second question. What will be the signs of your coming and the end times? Well, this is verses 29 through 31. And here it's going to be after the tribulation, after the great tribulation. He says, it will be immediately after the tribulation. And that we can read that a couple of ways. It can be that right after the tribulation, the fall of Jerusalem, immediately after that, chronologically, in a temporal sense, it's going to happen. Well, then it should have already happened. 
It could also be read as a relative term. It's going to happen immediately, but when you look at the course of cosmic history, the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, the destruction of the temple, and now it's like a blink of an eye. The point is, Christ's return is imminent. There's another way that you can read this. Instead of immediately after the tribulation, you can say after the tribulation, immediately. And if we do that, what it means is these signs that people look for, for the coming of Christ, are going to be immediate and spontaneous with His coming. They are going to occur with His return. These cosmic signs that He talks about. They're going to be like a flash of lightning, and then He's going to be there. Oh yeah, the sun will stop giving its light. The moon will stop reflecting the light of the sun. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly powers will be shaken. But these will happen virtually with His coming. The point is this. If we wait to watch for when the sun goes out and the moon doesn't glow and the stars fall and the heavenly powers are shaken, it's too late. He's there. And then he gives a further warning in an epilogue in verses 36 through 44. He says, therefore, do what? Be alert. Watch. Be ready. Because what's going to happen? And here's the point. It is going to occur when you what? The return of the Son of God, the Son of Man. Jesus' parousia, His second coming, about which we talk when we celebrate this Lord's Supper. It is going to occur when? We do not know. Mark tells us not even the Son of Man knows. We cannot predict that. It's going to be like a flash of lightning across the sky. That is why, friends, I disagree with these people that try to predict. Using calculations and systems of end-time theology, try to calculate when He's coming. I'm convinced that if one of them just accidentally, like a blind hog, got it right, God would probably change the time. We can't predict it. So how do we apply this? About three things. I think the first of all is obvious. Beware of false Christs, those who claim to be the Messiah, and folks, they are around us today in the 20th to the 21st century. Let me give a few examples. Abed Ruchin, also known as Oscar Bernhardt, was a German prophet who wrote in light of the truth, had 10,000 followers in his day, and they, well, actually, they, they're still around. He died in 1941. Samuel Awun Weor, also known as Victor Rodriguez, died in 1977. He was from Colombia in South America, established the Universal Christian Gnostic Movement. There's still a few German and Swiss cells that follow his movement. One of these you know very well, Sun Moon Moon, who had changed his name from Young Moon to Sun Moon, and, of course, the leader of the Moonies, who wrote the divine principles for the Unification Church. There's still about fifteen to 25,000 Moonies in 100 countries around the globe. We don't know exactly how many. Another, Anne Hamilton Byrne, also known originally as Evelyn Edwards, died in 2019. And, oh, by the way, by the way Moon died in 2012. She was from Australia, began the movement called The Family, claimed to be Christ incarnate, blended together Hindu and Christian theology, and raised a fortune of about $50 million in the 80s in her day. There's Yahweh bin Yahweh. How's that for a name? God, the Son of God, also known as Hulan Mitchell, 
died in 2007. He was from Clyde Kingfisher, Oklahoma, leader of the black national movement, nation of Yahweh, amassed a fortune of $250 million in his day, and today still, even though he is dead, there are followers in 1,300 U.S. cities and 16 other countries. And then there's Baba Messiah, also known as Simeon Ondito, who died in 1992. From Kenya, he led a movement called the Legio Maria, which is part of the African independent church that broke, broke, broke off from the Catholic church. And his followers claimed that he was Jesus incarnate. There's still three million followers in Africa. Now, what's my point? There's some commonalities in all of these movements. Number one, either they or their followers claim that the leader is divine God incarnate. And you notice every one of them changed their name. Changed their name to project a new persona. And almost all of them profited greatly from doing so. And all of them are now what? Dead. The reason I selected these is it represents a global kind of gullibility to charlatanism because the only continent not recognized there is Antarctica and I don't think there are many false prophets there so avoid false Christs avoid end time sign predictors the three signs given in um, verses 9 through 14 are not intended for the end times I believe there's some that that do there are many well-intentioned and not so well-intentioned people that have used these signs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines to try to predict the end times. Irenaeus did it, of all people, about the year 200. He predicted it would be about 300 years later. He was safe. He died before it would come true. Pope Sylvester II said it would be about 1000 AD for obvious reasons, the end of the millennium. Thomas Munzer one of the leaders of the peasant revolt said that it would occur in 1525. That's about the time he lost his life. Anne Lee, the leader of the Shakers, said it would be in 1777. And in the same year, Emanuel Swedenborg, the Swedish mystic, said that it would occur in 1777. Of all people, John Wesley tried to predict and said it would occur in 1836. And of course, the Jehovah Witnesses, Charles Russell, said that it had occurred in 1874, but it was a spiritual coming, and then later Joseph Rutherford changed it and said no, it was in 1914. Hal Lindsey said it would be by 1988. Jerry Falwell, of all people, said in 1999 that it would certainly occur within 10 years. We're long past that date. Sir Isaac Newton is safe. He died in the early 18th century. And he said that it's going to happen. Wait for this, folks. It's going to happen in 2060. It's not going to happen in 2060. I don't think. You see, these, these are false prophecies. Now, some of these people are not well-intentioned. Most of them were. But some of them that do this use it to scare people into following them or to sell more books or to get you to go to their movies and to make money. The fact of the matter is, folks, all of these are commonplace events. Wars and rumors of wars. Since the time of Christ, there have been almost 3,000 wars, major wars in history. That's one every eight and a half months. In the last two centuries, there has been a war, major war, one every, uh, every one and a half months. Earthquakes. 
There were 377 of them recur major earthquakes recorded in the 20th century. One every three months. And since 2000, in just this 23 years, there have been 825. One every 10 days. There are wars all the time. There are earthquakes all the time. And yes, do they seem to be increasing? They seem to be. Famines. 260 major famines. Widespread, destructive famines over wide areas since the time of Christ. That's one every seven and a half years. There would be people that would argue, well, you know, it seems like there are more earthquakes. Look, well, look at the statistics. The problem with that is, when you look at the increase in the number of wars, look at the increase of the world population. It's 14 times greater than it was 500 years ago, and there are six times as many nations as there were 500 years ago. There are going to be more wars. Increased earthquakes? I don't think so. I think we have better detection and we have better reporting. Famines increasing? That is a specious argument. There are about 80 million people that are at risk of famine and starvation in the globe today. That is true. But folks, that is only 1% of the global population. I don't discount the significance of it. But the point is, better food relief, better farming methods have virtually, hear this, virtually eliminated famine as a, as a significant cause of death in the globe in the latter part of the 20th century. Statistics prove that. The first part of the 20th century, 1890 to about 1960, the death rate was fairly high. For the last 70 years, it has dropped to 6% of that. We are gaining control of the effects of famine, even though some people starve. My point is this. People that use these arguments are using specious arguments. Don't listen to them. And then finally, we need to be cautious ourselves. We need to be cautious about using systems of end-time theology. There has never been a uniform Baptist approach to end-time theology. If I were to survey you today, we would probably have some premillennialists in here, historic. We might even have some dispensationalists. We might have some amillennialists. There might even be some post-millennialists. You see, in Baptist history, just take Baptist for a moment. In the 19th century, there was a post-millennial kind of consensus amongst most conservative Baptist theologians, whether you believe that or not. They were. B.H. Carroll was one of them. And then there was a rise of premillennialism and dispensationalism, and dispensationalism, a new invention of the 19th century. And then, of course, most folks abandoned postmillennialism, as you know, after World War I. And there are three strains that have competed for the affections of Baptists. Premillennial historic, premillennialist, dispensationalist, and amillennialist. Postmillennialism is even resurgent today. Folks, there are problems with each one of those systems. One is that all systems eventually proof text Scripture to prove their preconceived eschatological notions. There are difficulties in each one of those systems that can be proven from biblical exegesis. And the worst problem is it leads to divisiveness. It leads to divisiveness within the body of Christ. That's why I began by saying what I say today, not everybody is going to agree with. My interpretation of all these things, of course, is not infallible. But it does raise this question why is it that there's some people that build their whole theology upon their view of the end times 
which in fact divides God's people. Let me close with this. You know that the most two recent Baptist faiths and messages, is that the plural of it? 1963 and 2000, they differ significantly at certain places. But this is one of those places where there is a uniform view of eschatology. Let me read it to you very briefly. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all persons in righteousness. It says men means persons. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. And the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Folks, I don't think there is a thing about that that we could dispute. What it reminds us of is this. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we usually close it by saying, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, we celebrate the what? The death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we say what? Until he comes again. The point is this. Jesus is saying, yeah, the temple's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The people of God are going to be persecuted and scattered. But now let me tell you about when I'm coming back. You won't know. Be ready. It'll happen faster than you can imagine when you least expect it. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming in all of his glory and he will physically be present. And he is going to usher in, however you view it millennially, he is going to finish ushering in the kingdom of God. And there will be a judgment. Those who have followed Jesus Christ will be in the kingdom, and they will be the sheep. And those who have not followed Jesus Christ will not be in the kingdom. They will be the goats that are be, will be cast into outer darkness forever and ever. What this does is it reminds us his return is imminent, and it compels us. We must, we must, above all, stop being myopically focused on eschatological systems in the millennium. We must not try to calculate and guess when he's coming again. We must be urgent about sharing the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can live not only in hope, but the certainty that your son is coming again. And we thank you that with him he brings the finality of your kingdom, however you choose to do it, in whatever way. And we thank you that in that kingdom of righteousness, we will live forever. We will reign with you. We will reign with you by serving you forever. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.